Well, good morning, brethren, and happy Resurrection Day. Happy Resurrection Day. And as Pastor Tim encouraged us earlier, can we say those three beautiful words wherever you might be right now? He is risen. He is risen. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us as we begin our time in God's Word. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that especially on this day, that we celebrate the fact that you have chosen from before the foundation of the world to glorify yourself in the salvation of sinners through the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the fact that we worship an ascended, exalted Christ who is returning someday. Today we celebrate him. Our hearts are just full of adoration and praise for him for all that he has done for us. Father, even now, as we open up your word, Lord, we got nothing. Unless your spirit moves in our hearts and opens our spiritual eyes to see the glories of Christ and what he has accomplished, this goes on deaf ears. So, Father, I pray that your spirit would work mightily in our hearts, beginning with mine, that you would open our eyes to behold beautiful things about your Son and that the implications of the glory of Christ would be something that we would see for our life, that we might follow Him, that we might love Him, that we might put our trust in Him, that we might live well under our trials in the light of who He is and what He has accomplished. We pray for the blessing of the preaching of Your Word as well as the application of Your Word. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll open your Bibles uh, to Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. Romans chapter 4 and verse 25 is our key text for this morning. And we're going to be looking at this verse, but we're going to be using it as a springboard uh, to go to other verses as well. So we'll be all over the place. And today, fittingly so, appropriately so, I want to talk to us about the hope of the resurrection. The hope of the resurrection. You know, I'm sure you would agree that hope is something that we all need right now, right? We all need hope, especially during these tumultuous times, uncertain times, times that are um, difficult, that are hard. But oftentimes, we talk about hope in very interesting ways. How often do you personally pause to consider what hope actually is? How would you define hope? What is hope? I think oftentimes when people talk about hope, They speak about hope uh, as nothing more than wishful thinking. Um, They might say something like this. I don't know what's going to happen, but um, I sure hope things turn out well. Wishful thinking. Hope is a very uh, uncertain thing. It's like water that you cannot grasp. Or people's understanding of hope can be very subjective. It's up to you as a person, as an individual, to generate hope to somehow uh, produce hope from within yourself. You know, people speak of, of having faith in yourself, of believing in yourself. And we think of hope as this sort of positive thinking, having positive thoughts, so you remain hopeful as a person. And so people tend to think about hope in a very subjective way. It's, it's up to you to pull yourself up by your own moral bootstraps to generate some inner strength within yourself so that you might be a person of hope. These and other ways are how people tend to talk about hope and define hope. And all of these things describe a a certain a, a sort of worldly atheistic kind of hope. A sort of godless hope, godless, a hope that has no god in mind or at the center of life. And I'm here to tell you today brothers and sisters that it's the absolute opposite that kind of mindset of Christian hope. And as I was pondering the, this line of thinking about hope, I thought to myself, thank God for the resurrection. Thank God that today we celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Because you know why we should be thankful? Because in light of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, we know we can be certain about our hope. Our hope is sure. And our hope is objective. It is outside of ourselves. It is outside of our circumstances. 
That regardless of how we feel or whether we are in the midst of favorable circumstances or not, our hope is based upon our almighty God and his faithfulness to keeping his promises in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God for the resurrection. And this is what we celebrate today, this sure, certain hope that we have because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to think about this from this particular text and other verses this morning, the hope of the resurrection. And if you studied the book of Romans, then you know that the the great grand theme of the book of Romans is the theme of the gospel, the good news concerning the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul begins in the opening three chapters of Romans, after some words of love and affirmation for the Romans, he begins with the bad news. Before you can understand the good news of Christ and what he's done, you need to understand the bad news. That we are all in need of salvation, because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because we have sinned, we are sinners by nature, we are guilty and condemned before a holy God. And there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We cannot do good enough, uh, enough good works. God's standard is absolute perfection, absolute holiness. None of us are righteous in ourselves. We fall desperately short of the glory of God. Left to ourselves, we have no hope of forgiveness. No hope of reconciliation. Thus, we need God to intervene. And Paul begins to focus on the fact that Jesus Christ has come into the world. God's only begotten Son, His beloved Son, has come into the world to live the perfect life that we could never live. To die in the place of sinners on the cross, to pay for sins. And He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death on the third day. This is the good news of the gospel. Of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God has intervened and has offered us salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation from our sin and salvation from his just judgment because of our sin. And then Paul shows in Romans 4 that it's always been by faith that a person is made right with God. Not by anything that we could ever do. In fact, in Romans 4, he begins to show how Abraham was the great model of faith. That though imperfect and a sinner himself, though everything from a human standpoint seemed impossible and Abraham failed miserably, Abraham believed God that God would keep his promises to him. Therefore, chapter 4 verse 22 says, it was also credited to Abraham as righteousness. Despite Abraham's imperfections and the fact that he was a sinner, despite his deficient faithfulness, Abraham trusted in the faithful God who keeps his promises. And then Paul, if you notice in verse 23, applies this to us. He says in chapter 4, verse 23, Now not for his sake only, not only for Abraham's sake only, was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in Him, who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. In other words, just as Abraham was saved by faith, so also are we saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, so important here, then comes our verse in verse 25. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. We'll begin with this verse, but we're also going to go elsewhere. And we want to look at these two precious statements here in verse 25 that are made in this amazing verse. And this morning, I don't only want us, brothers and sisters, to reflect on these two statements, but more importantly, to celebrate them. To celebrate them. Because here are two beautiful realities to celebrate that are the basis of our hope. Two beautiful realities to celebrate that are the basis of our hope. And I've worded them in a particular way so that you may celebrate them and personalize them. Make them personal to yourself. The first beautiful reality that we must celebrate that is the basis of our hope is the following. Jesus was tortured for you. Jesus was tortured for you. And I put it this way because the imagery conveyed in verse 25 is just that. 
Notice in verse 25. Jesus, our Lord, from verse 24, was delivered over because of our transgressions. This is speaking of his death. But the word there, delivered, refers to someone being brought to trial and then handed over for execution. And in fact, we know that our Lord not only died, but he suffered terribly, didn't he? Jesus was executed and tortured. He was beaten and ridiculed and spit upon and flogged repeatedly to the point that he was unrecognizable to many. Jesus was tortured. He was treated like a criminal. Now, most people would be okay with this if someone was found guilty of committing a, a heinous crime. But in the case of Jesus, he was completely innocent, blameless. Jesus was absolutely and completely holy. First Peter chapter 2, verse 22 says that Christ committed no sin. Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21 says that God made him Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Christ didn't know sin in the sense that he never experienced it. He was absolutely holy and perfect and blameless and innocent and sinless. This is why he and he alone could die and pay for sins. Why? Because he is God in human flesh and because he is the perfect, blameless, spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Christ alone is the one who qualifies to be redeemer. First Peter 1.19 says that we were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. It's perfect, innocent. Now, if Jesus was blameless, why was he handed over to be executed? Why was he handed over to be killed? Look at the text in verse 25. It was, note, because or on account of our transgressions. Our transgressions. Transgressions there refers to acts of rebellion. Acts of wrongdoing. Acts of crime committed against God. Listen to me. Jesus was executed, tortured, delivered over to be killed because of our transgressions, because of our crimes, because of our rebellion, because of our sin as individuals. 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself, Christ, bore our sins in His own body on the cross. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5, But he, Christ, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. And later on, he says there in Isaiah 53, The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Who does that? Who does that? In a society and in a world where where nobody likes to take responsibility for other people's wrongdoing or law-breaking, Christ took upon himself our law-breaking and our wrongdoing. In a society and in a world where nobody wants to incur somebody else's debt, Jesus Christ went to the cross and absorbed our debt. What great love. What great love. He bore our sins. He paid and absorbed our debt that we could never pay. And today I want you to to personalize this. I want you to personalize this. As the song says, it was my sin that held him there on the cross until it was accomplished. Which speaks of the fact that he paid for our sins in full. Jesus, our Lord, was delivered over because of our transgressions. My sins. We need to personalize this. Oftentimes we think of the death of Christ as this generic thing, this broad thing, that this man 2,000 years ago died randomly for, for certain people. Listen to me. He was put on the cross for your personal sins. Because of your sinful thoughts, intentions, attitudes. Because of your destructive words, sinful words. Because of your sinful actions. Christ paid for those sins on the cross. 
Such was the love of Christ for you and me. And listen, if you're tuning in today, such was Christ's love for you if you will come to Jesus. If you will turn from your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the first part of the gospel, the good news. This is the greatest act of love ever known to mankind that even though you and I are are sinners who've broken God's law, who've rebelled against God, God gave His only begotten Son to die on the cross for our sins. You know the verse. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And Pastor Tim read... Romans 5, 8 earlier. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wow, what great love. Amidst all of the bad news and all of the panic going on in our world, this is good news indeed, isn't it? This is why Paul, the Apostle Paul, had a collision with Jesus Christ. Paul came to see his own sin, acknowledge his own sin before a holy God, and put his faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus forgave him, and Jesus called him to preach the message of the gospel. And Paul, that, that's all that Paul ever wanted to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, But we preach Christ and Him crucified, he says. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2 See, Jesus had a collision with the risen Christ and He could think of nothing else to do in His life but to proclaim this good news. This message that can save people from the, the greatest virus of all, the sin virus that we all have from the moment of conception. Only Christ can heal us. Paul says, I want to preach Jesus because people need the medicine for that great virus of sin. And his name is Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe. He is the only one that you must trust in so that you might be delivered from your sin and rescued from God's judgment. Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions. Oh, beloved, this weekend we celebrate The fact that Christ died in our place to pay for our sins, atonement was fully and sufficiently made. We can rejoice in that. Amen? We can celebrate that. But that's only half the story. Half the story. You already have point two there in front of you. Secondly, I want us to celebrate the wonderful, beautiful reality that Jesus was triumphant for you. Jesus is triumphant for you. See, if we left it at Jesus died, other people could claim this. And some have, deceiving people in the history of mankind. If we left it at Jesus died, others could claim this. Hey, my death was efficacious. My death accomplished salvation for people. Others could say this if we just left it at that. But they probably wouldn't be able to prove it. But here's the big difference. The big difference between other people that could claim that and Jesus Christ is that He is alive. He is alive. He rose from the dead. No one can make that claim. No religion in the world could make that claim. That their idol of choice or their God with the little g of choice is a risen, exalted king. That He rose from the dead. Buddha's followers have never claimed that Buddha rose from the dead. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, his followers have never claimed that he rose from the dead. Muslims don't claim a risen Muhammad. Every year, hundreds of pilgrims visit his grave. He's dead. No one denies this. But Jesus, the God of the Bible-believing Christian is risen and exalted and He's returning. He is alive. He is risen. And He's returning one day to judge the living and the dead. See, Christians worship and love a living Savior and Lord. I 
One commentator, Horton, writes this, The entire history of the Christian church is rooted in one central reality, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen, without the resurrection, we have no hope whatsoever. So, we must ask, we must ask, what does the triumph of the resurrection of Jesus mean for those of us who put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? In other words, why is the the triumphant resurrection of Jesus so important? And I want to give you four reasons. The first one in our text in verse 25. First, because it assures us of our justification. It assures us of our justification. Because Jesus is risen and he rose from the dead, we can be sure of our justification. Look at the second half of verse 25 with me of Romans 4. Jesus, our Lord, was raised because or for our justification. Oh, this is a great word, justification. It is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel. Justification. It appears more than 30 times in the book of Romans. And it comes from from the word for righteous and means to declare righteous. To declare righteous. It's a legal and forensic term. It comes from the language of the courtroom where we find judges and lawyers and people on trial. But here we're talking about the the ultimate courtroom where God is the great judge who presides over this courtroom and the entire human race, you and I included, is on trial before our holy creator. Every single one of us. And as I mentioned, Paul has spent three chapters In the book of Romans, Romans proving that all people are sinners who have sinned against a holy and righteous God. And thus, all of us are guilty and condemned before him. And this judge, God, who is holy and the ultimate just judge, cannot simply ignore our sin. He cannot simply choose to set aside our sin. He cannot sweep our sin under the rug. If he's truly a just judge, then he must necessarily, naturally, as an overflow of his just, holy, righteous character, punish all and every sin. Otherwise, he's not just and he's not holy. So we're left hopeless and doomed before this holy God. This is us. Each and every one of us. We understand this, don't we? We understand the concept of justice even as humans. You know, the other day, I guess it's the new thing here in our city. So I saw this video of a, of a man breaking in into somebody's backyard and stealing an Amazon package. And the guy obviously didn't realize that there were like two cameras looking at this guy, right? So now we have people stealing packages from each other. Um, apparently, sometimes these packages are delivered later on at night and people go to bed and now people are, are uh, breaking into backyards or patios or whatever to steal packages. And so this guy was on this video and you should have read on social media the outcry, justice, justice. This guy should be taken to jail. He deserves to be punished for what he's doing. I mean, we understand justice, don't we? As soon as somebody breaks the law, there's something in our hearts from within that that cries out law-breaking justice, and we want people to be punished. Well, think about this. If our outcry for justice is sinful and mixed with selfishness and self-centeredness, it's not the same thing for God. God, because of his holy and righteous character, requires that all sin would be punished. But this is where the glorious gospel comes in. Picture that law courtroom scene and picture someone in this great courtroom joyfully going in front of this great judge after you've been proven guilty and and charged for committing that crime justly. And this person says, I will take their punishment. I will pay the ransom. I will take the punishment that they deserve so that they could be let go, let be free. Justice can be served. I will pay that ransom. This is the good news of the gospel. This is at the heart of justification. Christ Jesus did this by virtue of his death and his resurrection. He said, in essence, step aside, sinner. 
who are guilty before my Father, before a holy and righteous God. Step aside. I will carry your sin. I will pay the penalty and the punishment for your sin. Wow. Beloved, the death and the resurrection of Christ made it possible for God's justice to be satisfied and for our sin to be paid for simultaneously. Romans chapter 3, verse 26 says this, For the demonstration, I say, of God's righteousness at the present time, so that He, God, would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What that verse is saying is the resurrection was the crowning event that made our justification possible. For God's justice to be satisfied and for sinners who deserve hell and condemnation to be declared innocent before a holy and just judge because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. So that when God justifies a sinner, it means two primary things. On the one hand, God acquits a sinner Sinners like you and I from sin and sin's guilt by placing our sin upon Christ. And on the other hand, God accepts that sinner by declaring him righteous, crediting us with the righteousness of Christ. Amazing, amazing. Our sin is reckoned to Christ's account. His righteousness is reckoned to our account. These are the glorious inner workings of our justification, of our salvation. But, taking it back to that courtroom scene, the guilty person must accept the offer by that someone who freely offers to make payment to pay the penalty for their offense. And that is what the Bible calls faith. Faith. A transfer of trust from myself my dependence upon my goodness, my good works, my resources. I abandon self. I see myself as a bankrupt sinner before a holy and just God. I can never meet his perfect standard. And instead I transfer trust from myself and my resources to the cross of Jesus Christ, to his atoning work. So that we as sinners can receive salvation not by our good deeds, not by our performance, not by anything that we could ever do, but by simply coming to God with empty hands of faith and receiving God's free gift of forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. Oh, this is the the best good news for the worst kinds of sinners, including ourselves. Amen? It's beautiful. So the resurrection, brothers and sisters, first assures us of our justification. But why else is the resurrection of Christ important? Secondly, because it proves the claims of Christ. It proves the claims of Christ. Throughout Jesus' public ministry, Jesus kept telling people that he had come from God, that he was the Son of God, that he was God himself, and this is why ultimately the Jews killed him, because of his claim to be divine, that he was God. And if he would have stayed dead, it would have meant that he was a liar, that he was a deceiver, that he was a false teacher who was leading people astray. But he did indeed rise from the dead three days later as he said he would. And the resurrection proved that Jesus told the truth regarding who he was. In Romans 1.14, we read this, that Jesus, God's son, was declared the Son of God with power, here it is, by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection was God's vindication and affirmation that Jesus was indeed God's begotten Son, the only begotten Son, and that He was indeed divine, that He was God Himself. The resurrection, if I can put it this way, was God's amen to the claims of Christ. Affirming His Son. Proving that His claims were true. And brothers and sisters, if I can make an application for our current circumstances. If Jesus, by virtue of His resurrection, proved that He always tells the truth, then He can certainly be trusted for anything else in our life. Amen? He can be trusted. Boy, trusting people is a huge thing for us, isn't it, as human beings? 
It's hard. It takes a long time to build trust in people because people fail us. People drop the ball. People let us down. But thank God that Jesus is different from us. He never lies. He's always truthful. And thus we can entrust our souls and everything in this life to him. We can trust our Savior. If in the most important event of his life, his death and his resurrection, Jesus kept his word, then wouldn't it follow that he would keep his word in everything else? I mean, this was Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Why are you worried? Why are you anxious, you of little faith? Don't you know that your heavenly Father knows what you need? Does he not clothe the lilies of the field? Does he not feed the birds of the air? Aren't you more important than those creatures? He knows what you need. You can trust him. He'll provide for you. We can trust our Lord. Later on, Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, if you want to turn there. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. In the light of the glories of the gospel, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us in Christ, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? In other words, if God went to the extent of sending his son to die for your sins, and he rose from the dead, he'll take care of you. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. In other words, look at the extent God has gone to save you, to secure your soul, eternally speaking. Isn't he going to take care of everything else, no matter what you go through in this life? He goes on to say that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, might I add, coronavirus, loss of a job, difficult circumstances, physical deterioration of your health. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He who lived and died and rose again on our behalf will take care of us. He will provide and protect us. The point is this, brethren. We can trust Christ who by virtue of his resurrection proved that he is full of grace and truth. He kept his word and he will continue to keep his word to us as his people. Why else is the resurrection important? Third, because it empowers us for present victory. It empowers us for present victory. Hear me. Christ's resurrection has implications for our present Christian life and how we live. When Christ rose from the dead, he rose victorious over sin and over death. The tyranny of sin and death is broken. It is undone for those who trust in Jesus Christ. What does this mean for us? Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 5. You can turn there if you want. Romans 6 and verse 5. For if we, Christians have become united with him. Paul is speaking there of our spiritual union, our spiritual fellowship with Christ. For those who are saved, for those who who have trusted in Jesus Christ, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our sin, that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. And then later in Romans 6.11, he says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, when you entered into fellowship with Christ, his death became your death, his life became your life. Brothers and sisters, be reminded of the fact that because Jesus rose from the dead and you are in union with him, you and I can live victoriously in the Christian life. 
We can live victoriously. So you know what that means for you and I? We are not a slave to our sin any longer in light of the resurrection and our union with Christ in his resurrection. Sin is no longer master over us. Can I put it this way? You do not need to give in to your sin any longer, Christian. No longer. You don't need to give in to lust, to evil desires in your heart. You don't need to give in to evil, sinful thoughts that you know dishonor the Lord. You don't need to give in to greed and covetous in your heart. You don't need to give in to that. You've been empowered by the Spirit of God to overcome, to live victorious as a believer by the grace of God. You don't need to give in to laziness anymore, to spiritual apathy, to inactivity in serving other people. You don't need to give in to those things anymore. You don't need to give in to outbursts of anger because of unmet expectations, because you can't control your circumstances or can't control other people. You don't give, need to give in to outbursts of anger, even if what you desire is something good. You don't need to give in to worry, to anxiety, to fear. All of us struggle with these things, don't we? But by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit of God, we cannot live there anymore. We don't need to live there anymore. We don't need to fear death. Listen, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you've trusted in the one who has risen from the dead, you can trust God by the Spirit of God. You can trust Him. We don't need to give in to complaining and grumbling anymore. Listen, you can choose to be grateful. You can choose to be thankful. You can choose to zero in on the evidences of the grace of God, which are all around you, even in the midst of trying circumstances, like the ones we find ourselves in. You can choose to praise God, to adore him, to ascribe glory to him, who is inherently and intrinsically glorious and majestic. If you are in Christ, Christ has set you free from slavery to sin. Jesus is not your master. Hear me. Grace not only saves you, but empowers you and I to live for Christ and put sin to death so that now the fruit of the Spirit is shown and evidenced in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. All of this is possible because Christ rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. Finally, Why is the resurrection important? Fourthly, because it guarantees our future glory. It guarantees our future glory. 1 Peter 1.3 calls our hope a hope that is incorruptible and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says, calls our hope the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. The hope of eternal life. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we have the guarantee that one day we will also rise again. Isn't that amazing? For those who are getting older and our bodies are deteriorating, one day we're going to get a new body, a glorified body. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, the Apostle Paul writes this, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man, Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And the all there is those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. Adam's sin brought death to all humanity, The second Adam, who is Christ, brings life to all who repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ, who trust Him as their Lord and Savior. Christ is the first batch, if you will, of a whole harvest of those who will rise from the dead too, if you will believe in Him. The penalty of our sin has been paid for by Jesus on the cross. 
The power of sin has been broken by the indwelling Holy Spirit who empowers us to live the Christian life by His grace. But hear me, one glorious day, the presence of sin will be completely gone, extinguished, terminated. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? To no longer struggle with your own sin. Sin will be completely done away with. No more sinful desires. No more sinful thoughts. No more sinful priorities. No more sinful motivations. No more sinful destructive words that hurt others. No more sinful and selfish actions. We will see him as he is. He will perfect his work in us and fully conform us into the image of his son, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to this. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. You know what all that means? Christians are heaven bound. This world, brothers and sisters, is not our home. And the current situation is reminding us of this, isn't it? That this world is not our home and that life is precious and death comes to us all, be it by the virus or in many other ways. But our citizenship is in heaven with Christ. Charles Spurgeon after mourning and burying many a brother or sister, wrote the following, quote, The very happiest persons I have ever met with have been departing believers. The only people for whom I have felt any envy have been dying members of this very church whose hands I have grasped in their passing away. Almost without exception, I have seen in them holy delight and triumph in their expectations of this, in this exceeding joy. I've seen deep peace exhibited in a calm and deliberate readiness to enter into the presence of their God, end quote. Oh, I witnessed this recently the other day as the wife of one of my dear friends was passing away. And they uh, put out a video of her in her latter moments, latter hours with her family, her husband and her kids just singing together. Her body, her little body deteriorating. She's a believer in the Lord, has trusted Christ. Her little body deteriorating. But she's singing and she, brothers and sisters, she was happy. She was smiling the whole time. Why? Because she longed to go home. She longed to be with Christ. She knew where she was headed. Why do we long for heaven? Why do we long for heaven? Because Christ will be there. Because Christ will be there. She knew that. This is our hope. And one day we're going to see our Savior. Turn to John chapter 14 and verse 1. John 14 and verse 1. The Lord Jesus says this. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Isn't that precious? Words in the upper room discourse. Amazing. The disciples knew they were trying to get their minds wrapped around the fact that they wouldn't see their Lord whom they've been walking with for a long time, seeing him, fellowshipping him with him. And now he's going to go to the cross and he's comforting them. One day you will be with me. See, what should make heaven most attractive for us are not the rewards. Those, I guess, will be nice. It's not all of the other Christians who will be there past, present, and future. I guess there's going to be, that's going to be a little bit cool to be able to ask different believers certain questions about why they did certain things, right? What should make heaven most attractive for us is that Christ will be there. Seeing Jesus, being with Jesus, 
is the most alluring thing about future glory in my own heart, and I hope it is for your own heart, to be in a new heavens and a new earth with the one who is the lover of my soul, who went to the cross to die for my sins. That is what's most alluring about heaven. Being with Jesus is why we should long to go home. This was Paul's heart in Philippians 121. While in prison, he says this, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, he doesn't even know if he's going to live or he's going to die while in prison. But he says, if God wants me alive here on earth, I'm going to serve him. I'm going to be fruitful for him. I'm going to invest myself into the gospel ministry. But if he takes me home, oh, that's very much better. Why? Because Christ is there. So that dying for Paul was absolute gain. Gain. I love what our brother Steve Lawson says. That if living is not Christ, then dying is not gain. If living is not Christ for you, then dying is not gain. This is why we should not live in fear of death as believers. This is people's greatest fear right now, isn't it? But here's the problem. This is short-sighted. And it's understandable, but it's short-sighted. You know why? Because the COVID-19 virus can only cause the first death, physical death. But what people should fear is that the greater virus of their sin, your sin and my sin, produces both the first and the second death, which is eternal separation from our Creator forever and ever and ever in a horrible place called hell. Reserved for those who have rejected God's provision for the forgiveness of their sins and for reconciliation found in the cross of His Son. The greatest manifestation of His love. This is what we should fear most. Where our soul will go. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, fear God. Fear God. See, if you don't have Christ, it makes sense why you live in fear. Because perhaps you don't have Christ. But for Christians, death is not the worst thing that can happen. Why? Because if it should come down to that, we know where we're going. We know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. It should bring us great hope and great encouragement. And you say, oh, come on, Kempis, don't get spiritual on us. Does this mean that we should live irresponsibly? Because after all, if we die, we're secure. Absolutely not. We should take precautions. We should submit ourselves to our governing authorities. And the caution that they are communicating to us. But as Christians, we should not think and live as those who have no hope. Because our eternal destiny is secure. That's what God is saying to us this morning. Because of Christ's resurrection, we have the assurance of future glory. And listen to me. If you are not a Christian, if you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, you can have that guarantee of future glory today. Today, this moment can be the day when you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Confess your sins to God. Acknowledge that you are a sinner and that you want to be reconciled to Him, that you want to be forgiven. And transfer trust from yourself, from self-worship. Put your trust in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. His provision for the forgiveness of sins. Don't put off the most important thing in your life right now. Your greatest need is not that you don't ever get the coronavirus. Your greatest need is to have your sins paid for and forgiven. Your greatest need is that you be made right with God. And can I remind us, for those of us who are Christians, who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, we who are the children of God, Brothers and sisters, be comforted by the fact that because Christ died and rose from the dead, you and I have been guaranteed future glory. Future glory. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who have fallen asleep, 
so that you will not grieve as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself, Jesus himself, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And listen to this. Therefore, comfort one another with, with these words. Oh, we need this right now as Christians. Not only that we do acknowledge that this is a very difficult, challenging, hard time, but also reminding one, an, one another of the hope of future glory that we have. Oh, sister, brother, it is difficult what we're going through, isn't it? I hear you. I feel the same thing too. But isn't it comforting that this too shall pass? Isn't it comforting that we have eternal life? Isn't it comforting that one day Jesus will return and we will reign with him and we will be with him? See, our tests and our trials and our afflictions and our difficulties in whatever way, shape, or form they might take, brothers and sisters, move in our hearts to anticipate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the more. Let us put our hope on the future glory to be brought to us at the revelation of Christ. The great Puritan theologian, John Owen, was well aware of great trials in his own life, sickness and disease with his family, and especially of the sting of death. Ten of his eleven children died. Can you imagine that? And the one that survived, survived only until adulthood. John Owen experienced grief far beyond what any of us have or will ever experience. But listen to what he says as he contemplates the reality of disease and death. Here's what he writes. The preciousness of a medicine is revealed by the presence of the disease. We will not know the power of grace until we feel the power of the testing. We will be tried. We must, we must be tried to realize the glory of being preserved. To those whom Christ is the hope of future glory, he is also the life of present grace. Christ is our present grace and future glory in our greatest suffering. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the King of glory, the risen, exalted, ascended Christ. Thank you for your amazing love and having sent him into the world to die for our sins and to rise again. Father, by your grace, help us to live in the light of his victory. Help us to live here on this earth on mission to proclaim to those who do not have hope this message that gives and brings hope. Father, we can sing like the great songwriter, because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because he lives, we know that he holds the future and life is worth the living because our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, lives. In whose name we pray, amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.